the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future, invest in growth. Visit investingunicorns.com to learn more. The Unicorn portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to episode 84 of Magic Markets. Uh, Mo is still in South Africa, so we continue to have to find, you know, those golden hours in the day where there's electricity, where he is staying in Johannesburg and where I live in Cape Town. It was a lot easier when he was in Canada. So (laughs) crazy, crazy times. And today we're speaking to another South African in another part of the world who you've uh, certainly gotten to know on Magic Markets over, I think, quite a few episodes now. But before we welcome Craig, uh, Mo, welcome from Joburg. You had to even deal with home affairs today. You really are not giving yourself a chance to come back and fall in love with this country, are you? <laughs> yeah, Ghost, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure being back. I say that very tongue-in-cheek because it's been <laughs> ridiculously difficult. And in fact, our topic for the podcast today with Craig from Anbro is a first half to forget, right? That's that's the title of what we want to unpack here. But I'm sure there are South Africans or even ESCOM executives who want to forget not just the first half, but maybe, you know, forget the last 10 going on 15 years worth of load shedding. Certainly not, very, certainly not pleasurable, a very difficult experience for us to try and schedule uh, our three time zones historically, now scheduling based on ESCOM's load shedding availability of electricity. So yeah, that's how it is right here. But Craig, you don't have those problems up in the sunny UK. Welcome on board Magic Markets uh, for this chat. Thanks. Good afternoon, Mo. Good afternoon, guys. Good to be here again. Yes, I mean, fortunately, we're having a bit of a heat wave in the UK now. I mean, we're chatting a little bit offline saying, you know, normally when you climatize in the UK, 22 degrees becomes pretty warm. But now we're having in the 30s and it's exceedingly hot. So, you know, we enjoy the summer. It doesn't last very long yet. So we'll take what we can get. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll smile. We'll try not complain too much about the heat. Got the weather and the electricity now. What a treat. But, uh, you know, all things in life are about balance. Exactly. Maybe great (laughs) weather, but it certainly hasn't been great markets. I think just before we uh, jumped onto this uh, podcast, Mo, you pointed out to me, this is the worst first half start for the NASDAQ ever, I think, which is uh, not, not pretty. And obviously so much of that is just the level we came into this year on. I mean, you know, it's from where we are measuring to where we are now, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. You know, just to contextualize that for our listeners, if, if you look at the big three, you know, if you look at the NASDAQ, you look at the S&P 500, you look at the Dow, I think for the Dow and the S&P, you've got to go back to like the 1970s to find a first half that was as bad as this. For the NASDAQ, it is the first half, the worst first half ever. 
And, you know, let's also contextualize that because I think going into the tail end of last year, we had tech stocks that were really flying. We had valuations that were looking, you know, nosebleed expensive. And, you know, we've unpacked some of this. Again, for our longer time listeners, you know, we've unpacked how to look at growth stocks differently to value stocks, for example, with Craig, with Justin, with the team at Anbro. And so that's why we thought, you know, I, I read a piece from Anbro, Craig, you've put this on your website. So, you know, for listeners that want to go and check it out, we'll point you towards the Anbro website at the end of the show. But Craig, you titled this a first half to forget. So let's get into it because I think it's not just the weather that leaves us hot under the collar in the UK. It's the markets, right? The markets have certainly had you hot under the collar for the last while. How have you navigated it? You know, what what have been some of the the highlights and lowlights for you at, uh, at Anbro? Let's unpack some of that. Sure, guys. Well, I mean, let's jump right in. I think, first of all, when you talk about a first half to forget, not only is it just being, say, equities as an asset class, but also bonds, you know, that have fallen considerably. And to put that into context, it's the first time, I think, again, since the 1970s or so, since you've seen both bonds and equities fall by more or less equal amounts. And we're talking about, say, 20 odd percent, you know, if one just wants to use a round number for, for something like the markets and the and the bond um, long-term bond index. So clearly, you know, even something like a 60-40 type portfolio where, you know, generally very conservative type of investors would be positioned, it's really been a poor, poor market and a poor, poor time to be an investor. Notwithstanding the fact that you had, you know, high valuations in equities um, and particularly, say, tech stocks coming into the year, you also had bond yields in many cases at zero and in some cases negative rates. And, you know, that was a bubble that people were expecting to pop as well. And it was just impossible for rates to remain at naught or negative. And as a result, we saw a massive sell-off. Everything sort of cratered right down. And yes, I mean, it's been a, it's been a market where, you know, one's really had to keep your cool. You know, you've had to stay um, calm, you know, in the, in the context of what we're seeing. Stick to the knitting, you know, make sure that you understand what it is you're doing, what your time horizon is. And also importantly, I guess, what it is that you own and what you're owning. And, you know, as a as a long-term investor, we expect to see these types of volatility come along. But, you know, this has definitely been something which has been a bit of an eye-opener. Yeah, the 60-40 portfolio, that's where you have 60% of your money left because you've lost 40. I think that's the, <laughs> the 60-40 most people have currently. And, I mean, Craig, it's absolutely right. It's been a terrible start to the year. There's been nowhere to hide. I mean, I've made many a joke about my gold shares, which have done pretty much as badly as everything else, really. I mean, gold has traded way down now in the last few days again. Like, it just it just doesn't go in the right direction. So it's just one of those really painful years where you have to remember that you're in this for the long term to create wealth. And uh, it's not about what happened in the last six months, unless you're living off what you kill as a trader, in which case, yeah, the markets are not a joke. Yeah, I think I want to jump in there, right? Is 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 because, you know, I know you say tongue in cheek, 60-40 is, is you've got 60 left. But the reason why bonds have done so poorly, and again, for the benefit of our, our listeners who might not be familiar with bond market dynamics, is remember bonds move as the inverse to what's happening with yields. And so it's almost this perfect storm. Craig, I think you unpacked it in the note quite nicely in that, you know, we've had a pandemic. We have what's happened in Ukraine, for example. We've had stimulus that comes through and pushes demand. But at the same time, you know, the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns have curtailed supply. So you've pushed both the supply and the demand buttons at the same time. So now you've got rampant inflation. And whilst inflation is supposed to then tail off, you know, just mathematically basis get worked in, whilst inflation is supposed to tail off, something we've discussed a lot on the show, 
Uh, unfortunately, what happens in this instance is now you have the choke points from the war that are keeping inflation a little bit higher than they would have ordinarily been. So I think all of this comes through. We've had U.S. bond yields react very sharply and then global bond yields because the Fed's reaction function now has stepped up a notch. You know, they were arguably behind the curve. Now they're moving in 75 basis point increments. You know, the market's pricing that in. And so with all of this coming through, higher bond yields means that bond prices come down very sharply, you know, because we were sitting close to zero. If you see a bond yield move by a percent, holy smoke, the actual price of that bond has to adjust quite sharply in order to compensate for that. So that's the one thing. And then the transmission mechanism from bond yields being the risk-free rate into valuations. And I think that's important, Craig, because, you know, when you look at valuations of value stocks, you know, arguably they weren't as highly priced as some of the stuff that you guys look at, which are the more growth oriented stocks. Maybe take us through what does that look like? What does the classic value versus growth story look like? Which sectors have stuck out for you? And how are you reading the world that we sit in right now? And can we actually expect these trends to persist? Because that becomes a key consideration for how you how you strategize around your investments over the next 12 months, 24 months, and then five years. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a it's a great question and it's a great, I think, discussion to have because what we're seeing now is a very unique situation. And again, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for people to go and have a look at the notes and, and to just try and understand it a bit more if they have a bit of time to read it. But basically, you know, what we're in now is a very unique situation where you're seeing not only interest rates rise and historically rising interest rates has benefited a certain component of the market. So, you know, I remember learning when I first started in the markets, you know, we'd sit down and we'd go and, and we'd go and study and guys would say, well, you know, in a rising interest rate environment, this is how you want to position your portfolio. And you say, okay, wonderful. And you make a mental note. So when rates start rising or it's anticipated, you try and adjust and adapt. Then we're in a situation at the same time where you have a recession that is potentially on the cards. And, you know, when it comes to investing in recessions, there's a different set of circumstances one has to take into account. And, um, you know, you have to then take a look at the, the opportunity set out there and say, well, you know, what what should I be buying and selling in a recession? And then, of course, you have on top of that high inflation. And, you know, in a high inflationary environment, there's another set of circumstances that people should look at and take into account when it comes to the investing process. So now, you know, we suddenly have a situation where you have all three. You have a potential recession, you have high inflation, and then you have a high interest rates. And um, I think the important thing to realize there is, you know, there's there's no sort of recipe that, that one sort of recipe fits all when it comes to this kind of thing. But all we can do as investors is, you know, potentially look at the past and say, well, you know, what happened previously when when you had a high inflationary environment? What happened previously when interest rates were rising or when you know the globe went into a, in, into a recession? And how did markets react then? And, and perhaps, you know, like the Mark Twain saying goes, you know, history doesn't often repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. And, you know, you can try and extrapolate from that. So, you know, for me, what I did in this note, and, and I guess it's something that people could take a look at, is I looked at, say, the 2008-9 financial crisis. And I compared that to to pretty much where we are at the moment. And, and the reason I, I did that was I thought, well, you know, the crisis was in 2008-9 was an, represented to a degree an, exis, an existential risk to the financial system. So that was a big shock, right, that everyone had to digest and to get around. And then at the same time, you know, you had a very deep, sharp recession that came in after that, which lasted for quite some time. 
And, you know, if you compare that a little bit to COVID now, COVID again was almost like a big shock. You know, we've then had big stimulus that's, you know, coming to try and support the markets. And now the implications of that is rising inflation and rising rates, which is potentially pushing us into a recession. So we look at how markets performed. And, you know, there obviously are some outliers. I mean, during the 2008-9 crisis, financials and industrial stocks in particular bore the brunt of the market sell-off. Financials in particular were highly leveraged. I mean, they were caused the whole, you know, the whole crisis in the first place, and they had to be bailed out to the tunes of billions and billions of dollars by governments, you know, all over the U.S. and Europe. Um, this time around, it's a little bit different. You know, the big underperformers this time around are unfortunately our space. It's the growth stocks and, you know, tech in particular. And as you alluded to earlier on, you know, the, the NASDAQ down by the most it's ever been, you know, for the first half of a year pretty much alludes to that point. And this is when one, you know, has to look at the environment now and say, well, you know, what is different from this recession um, potentially that we're about to go into now versus previous ones and how does one position themselves for that, knowing what we know today? And that's where, you know, we hope to, to offer a little bit of differentiation in our thinking and in our portfolio and stock selection. Something interesting that I picked up when I looked at the note. So commodities in the global financial crisis kind of minus 1%. I mean, everything lost. And maybe we'll get to that point just now. But at the moment, year today, commodities have done very well. But be careful. It depends which commodity. So if you bought the Resource 10 index on the JSE thinking, oh, I've seen this movie, commodities, resources, you haven't done well. Because what you've done is buy a whole lot of gold miners. And I can tell you before, for a fact, from my own portfolio, that's not where you want it to be. So unless you were in oil, actually, this year mainly, you haven't really had a good year outside of that in commodities. I mean, as I say, like the resource 10 is not, and I, I don't know what it is now, but when I looked about a month ago, the financials index in South Africa was actually outperforming the resource 10 because of the higher interest rates and the banks were coming off a nice low base. So, you know, this, it's not easy. And I think one of the important things is when you're thinking long-term, you know, over a six-month period, cyclical businesses can either be fantastic or terrible. I mean, that's often the case, right, with commodities. If you time them, you are absolutely styling. But if you time them incorrectly, you can get really badly hurt. Whereas, Craig, I think a lot of the businesses that you invest in are not cyclical. They are secular. You know, they are these digitalization growth trends benefiting from stuff like cloud computing, AI, machine learning, whatever the case may be. I think you've got a lot of biotech stuff in there as well. We've spoken about some of that previously. And it's important for people to understand those two things are very different. One, you can kind of buy and forget potentially. And the other one, I don't think you can. I'm not sure you can buy commodities and forget them. You've got to be really careful with that. Well, I suppose there's one, you know, there's a very simple comment to make when one looks at commodities. And, and the thing is, there's a reason that they call them a commodity, right? In the very simple definition, what is a commodity? It's something that's easily accessible that you can get, you know, and, and doesn't necessarily have a moat or a big differentiating factor. And I think that's the problem with cyclical companies as a whole. When we look at our sort of stocks that, you know, that we try investing to your point, Ghost, is, you know, we're looking for businesses that are in really operating in industries that offer mega trends. And these are trends that we expect to last for decades, you know, not just as a cycle, you know, when it comes to, you know, an app comparison, I guess, to, to commodities and, and cycles. And yes, I mean, coming into this market sell-off, you guys have alluded to the point that, you know, we had very steep valuations coming into 2022. And what we've seen as a result of that is a very big reset in prices. And that has happened in our space and it's happened 
across the, the markets as a whole. But because, you know, the growth stocks were arguably more stretched than the rest of the market, they have fallen a lot further. So, yes, I mean, for people that have been invested in that space and that are invested in portfolios like ours, we've certainly felt a lot of pain this year. The question one has to ask yourself now, though, is, you know, where do we go from here? You know, obviously, you've had oil, as you've alluded to, you know, outperform considerably this year. And everyone, I think, has a clear understanding as to why that's happened. You know, if it wasn't for the the situation happening in Europe, you know, it's unlikely oil would be at these kind of levels. And the fact that oil has started falling now already and why, you know, if you look at some of the graphs of, you know, commodity prices and oil and energy in particular with a great financial crisis, they also outperformed considerably going into the crisis and probably up until halfway through the crisis and then fell considerably after that. And the reason quite simply is, you know, when economies go into recession, demand breaks, you know, and everything that is then subject to very specific demand drivers, you know, naturally sees that dissipate and prices come down to compensate for that. Now, the one point I'd like to make just around the markets as a whole and, and, and then bring that back into our space is that prices have compressed. So if people look at, say, the P-E ratio, you know, which is something everyone likes to talk about when it comes to the S&P 500, that has come down to pretty much, you know, in line with its long-term average. The problem that the markets have at the moment and what a lot of people are still stressed about is that the P's come down, but the E part of that hasn't necessarily come down. You know, so if one starts looking at earnings now prices have fallen because everyone's expecting the market to come down or to suffer from higher interest rates or the economy to go into recession but the earnings haven't been published yet so you know we're still waiting to see the damage that this may or may not cause to company profits and if the e or the earnings part comes down and the pe ratio still goes up you know the market might have to come down a little bit more to compensate for that and you can see it, i think particularly in earnings expectations that have started coming through now for consumer discretionary type stocks. So these are businesses that, you know, face the consumer on a day-to-day basis. The important thing I'd like to make just with our space is that, you know, we may very well see a slowdown in growth in the growth stocks if, a, you know, if the economy grows into, into recession and the world goes into recession. But for now, anyway, we're not seeing any forecasts for the E to go negative. So, you know, we're still expecting growth, perhaps slower growth, but not negative growth, which means then that, you know, we shouldn't, in theory anyway, suffer from the, the erosion in E, um, you know, that, that you'll be seeing in the rest of the market. A couple of points. So, you know, it's, it's useful looking at historical analogs. You know, Ghost mentioned something around commodities and how they've shot the lights out. But again, the rule book's changed quite a bit. So I, I'll use a very simple macro indicator. You know, if, if oil used to rally back in, in the old days, you want it to be long, for example, commodity FX as well. And if you look at some of the oil FX exposed plays, Canadian dollar, great one, because I live in Canada, right? That hasn't performed. So there are all of these differences, there are these breakdowns and correlations, and that's why just a, a word of caution to people, if you go back, no two crises are the same. Craig, you said it, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes, and I think it's very important to just look at things with a slightly nuanced view, and I think that's what you're doing. What I want to pick up on, Craig, as you mentioned, because I think your note was was very unapologetic in that you, you, you took a very hard look at the space, and that's what we expect of you. And you looked at your top 10 holdings in your flagship unicorn fund, 
And you've shown, you know, how much that's down year to date. You've shown how much it's down from its all-time highs. But then very useful, and to tie into the point you just made now, is you also looked at what's the underlying business doing? You know, what's the revenue growth over the last quarter? What's the three-year forecast on the revenue growth? Now, I take the point. I, I was looking at the S&P 500. You've seen analysts' expectations around revenue have actually curled over a little bit, you know, and, and those tend to correlate. So, yes, maybe we're getting the cyclical overshoot or undershoot does the market react and re-rate further from where we are right now? But the point I want to pick up on here, and the question I want to actually pose to you is, in the makeup of your top 10 holdings, as I'm looking at it now, and again, for listeners, go. we will point you to the Anbro website. It's there. You can go and have a look at it. It's a very eclectic mix of stocks. And I, we know your criteria. We've spoken about it. You like founder-led stuff. But I, I look at this and I say, this is the economy of the future. And there are a couple of names in there that are very defensive. So if I look at something like a CrowdStrike on a macro basis, that's cybersecurity. Needs in cybersecurity are not going to go away. They're only going to grow as the world kind of moves even more towards this internet-based economy. Cybersecurity, big key theme there. If you look at some of the, the more traditional names that we may have discussed on the show, something like a Microsoft comes through there. And we know how Microsoft is a key linchpin to the economy. We've covered this in Magic Markets Premium as well. So it's this mix of names you, people might know. It's a mix of names people might not know. Maybe just underpin for us, you know, what does that look like from an ethos perspective we've covered already? Maybe just touch on that for listeners that maybe missed the previous shows. But also, how do you see that long-term, that three-year, maybe that five-year forecast as analysts ratchet their expectations down? You know, what's the Quantify that. What's the risk of a re-rating in some of these names from where we are now versus, you know, delivering a 30%, 15%, 20%, whatever the growth number is over the next three to five years on a compounded basis? Because that could still be quite powerful, right? Sure. Well, the important thing to mention is that, you know, if markets continue to fall, everything's likely to fall, right? So, you know, the fact that, you know, the NASDAQ has already fallen by the most that it's ever had in the first half doesn't mean that it's not necessarily going to keep going down if the whole world keeps keeps coming down. The important thing I think to realize is that when we get to markets that have fallen by as much as they have, you know, the one's got to look at this and say to yourself, well, the odds certainly start tilting in my favor now. You know, from you know putting money to work and being successful in in my investment if I do my homework, particularly with a, a three, five, ten year view. You know, when you've really seen a market lose a quarter or a third of its value or a stock lose 30 or 40% of its value, clearly the risk, um, you know, the risk return calculation is skewed considerably from one way right to the other. And that's a situation, you know, we think we find ourselves in, in our space. Now, as you mentioned, Mo, you know, there's, there's quite a, you know, sort of eclectic bunch of stocks in our top 10. And that is on purpose. You know, we do have a diversified portfolio. A lot of people say, you know, but you're only tech. Well, we're not just tech. You know, we, we're companies that are exposed to fast growing industries that have big founder influences, very strong balance sheets, free cash flow positive positions. You know, we're not com we're looking for companies that are massively leveraged you know, have big risk, you know, of, of failure and now are potentially offering products or services that we think the world doesn't need. You know, so these aren't fads that we're investing in. These are what we think are really long-term secular businesses. And, you know, the important thing I think to mention in that space as well is just that, you know, valuations have come down considerably. I mean, if one looks at something like, like a Google, 
which is a synonymous business. Everyone knows it. Everyone uses it every day. And it's at its lowest relative valuation that it's been in the last eight years. And that means it's on a lower relative valuation than when it crashed during COVID. You know, and we all remember how fast and brutal that was. You know, the, the company still delivered fantastic earnings growth ever since then. And the share price has come all the way back down. So the relative value is far more appealing now than it was even after the COVID sell-off. And the market's just not willing to see that right now. The important thing, I think, to realize then is that the growth is something that we expect to be steady as she goes in this space, particularly when the markets are, or the economies rather, are as vulnerable or feel as vulnerable as they are. But once they get through this, then there's real space for acceleration in earnings growth again. When people get comfortable, when C-suites get comfortable, and people are willing to look at spending and opening up their checkbooks again. The important thing, I think, with tech now and tech 20 years ago is, you know, tech was something that businesses saw as an expense that you had to incur maybe a bit begrudgingly, you know, because you had to buy 50 PCs for your, you know, your dealing room if you work for a big bank or whatever the case is. That's hardware tech. You know, when you're looking at, say, software tech and tech that's, you know, more influences behavior or improves efficiencies in a company, that's a different sort of decision, you know, that a C-suite or financial director is going to make. He's going to look at things and go, well, times are tough. You know, do I want to cut back on my cybersecurity protection now? No, I don't think I really want to do that. Do I want to cut back on the sort of custom, you know, the sort of software that we use to, you know, expedite processes, cut costs, keep the business lean? No, I don't think I'm going to want to do that, right? Um, but I might hold off on other things. So tech spending now, I don't think is necessarily as at risk as it may have been, you know, in a different life, say 10 or 20 years ago. And we think that's why, you know, we, we expecting to see not only, you know, solid growth in in company revenues and, and earnings, you know, throughout 2022, but again, you know, into the next three, four, five years, we expect that to maintain, you know, pace and even then accelerate as the recession ultimately comes to an end, which it will, which it will do at some point, if it happens. Yeah, Craig, it's mega interesting. And we see it all the time in Magic Markets Premium in the companies that we look at, you know, like Levi's perfect example. They're doing a whole ERP investment now, you know, as in Levi's, the jeans business at recovering this week. That stuff doesn't stop because these companies have to keep investing in the systems that power their business, make it better and make it more efficient. I mean, that is just the way it's always going to be. There's a section towards the bottom of your note that I want to make sure we cover before we run out of time today. And that talks about, um, you know, where you believe that the above average, you know, greater than market and inflation returns could come from. And it talks to this concept of capital light companies, growing markets, they've got little or no debt, they have above average margins. This is all from your your really interesting note around this stuff. And you've made the point now, you know, the unicorn fund is not just a tech fund. And if you look at the top 10 holdings, not all of it is tech. That's absolutely right. They all have this other sort of thread that brings them all together. But I think it's worthwhile just spending a couple of minutes talking about, you know, why you believe that is the case, I suppose. I mean, it all certainly makes a lot of sense, just that little checklist. And, uh, you know, is, is that certainly the approach you plan to take for years to come? I'm sure it is. But I think for those looking at potentially investing in the fund, um, you know, especially in light of how sharply the market has sold off, you know, at some point, it's going to be the bottom. That's the truth of it. And at some point, it's going to be a wonderful trade to, to jump in. And no one knows exactly when that is. Um, and obviously, for South Africans, they've got to think about the RAND as well, which adds another <laughs> layer of complexity to it. But I think it's worth just maybe chatting through that list for a couple of minutes. Sure, 100%, Ghost. I think, you know, one of the recipes, you know, we, we look at over and above the conventional 
sort of checklists that we follow, which we've alluded to a few times, being you know founder-run, founder-influenced businesses, you know, with big um, total addressable markets and, and long runways. You know, we're also looking for companies that you know can have really big margins. And one of the ways you expand your margins is you you have a very capex light business model. You know, so for every sort of customer that you bring on or every sale, additional sale that you that you sort of record in your business, you don't have to spend that much more money to get it. And, you know, that's the one thing. You know, so capital light business models generally have low input costs. There's very low capex required. You know, if if you compare it to, say, a, um, you know, a company that manufactures widgets or a factory or something like that, generally those tools those sorts of things need to be upgraded on a fairly regular basis. And you see it a little bit, you know, with one of our holdings, which is Tesla, you know, where, you know, whenever they need to, to grow, they have to build another mega factory, you know, and another gigafactory. And that means, you know, more money and billions of dollars that goes into that investment. And, you know, those are the sorts of things where, we, you know, we think once that money goes in, you, know, you then have to build it and, and hope that they will come. When you have businesses that don't necessarily have to sink that much capital into their business, any additional sell is just incremental profit, and the, and the relative profit they make is a lot higher, which means the margins get pushed up. At the same time, then you want these businesses to be operating in growing markets, and this is where you know if I just continue with the Tesla overlap a little bit, so it doesn't necessarily tick the the box of low capex, but the market expansion in EVs, for example, is huge. You know, so. That is another important thing, you know, one one needs to look for. You need businesses that can keep their costs down or keep them relatively light. And then they need to be operating in a market where the growth is considerable and, and the site of that growth is not very hard for you to see as an investor. You know, so you can see where the growth is coming from and you can see that it's out there for the company to, to pick up. And then, you know, it's a low-cost business from a CapEx perspective. So you start seeing those pieces come together. And what those really do at the end of the day is it means that you have a business which has really big margins. So you have the ability then to withstand a slowdown in the economy, you know, should that happen. And it's a it's a comment one often sees if one looks even in the space of, say, value investing and things like that. Companies that have very big margins have a lot more capacity to increase um, prices if they need to or to consume cost if that cost comes their way. So it doesn't necessarily apply to a business like ours that has low capex requirements, but if, say, things like salaries or wages go up, you know, if you've got a bigger margin than a competitor, you can absorb that increase and it does less damage to your business than a company that has lower margins and is battling. And then you put all of that together and then you find yourself in a position where if these companies decide to be aggressive, you know, they can really put the squeeze on some of their competitors out there. And aggressive can mean two things. I mean, you can either cut prices if you feel like you'd like to when you're in the midst of a recession, you know, and that really would squeeze out competitors that do not have the same strength of balance sheet or the same, mar the same margins that you have. Or you can be more aggressive by buying out competitors, you know, and that's something that not necessarily directly comparable, but something like Bidvest in SA has done for years and years and years. You know, they have the pristine balance sheet they have considerable cash flow and cash generation. And when things get tough, they're the last man standing, right? And they go out and pick up really good companies that are battling for whatever reason. And they scoop them up for, you know, fractions of what they really worth because they can. And that's ultimately the, 
you know, a recipe of strength. And we think that those three issues, you know, capital-like, growing markets, little to no debt, big margins, are, you know, very strong places to be when markets get tough. And, you know, we think that the sort of companies we're investing in or the portfolio is jam-packed with those sorts of businesses. And that means they can withstand any pressure we, we expect to see over the next 6 to 12 months and hopefully come out even stronger as a result of that as other competitors fall by the wayside and they've used that to increase market share or, you know, buy, um, buy competitors and grow their business. We're so grateful to be able to pick the brains of, of, of you and Justin and the whole team at Anbro because, you know, this was a bit more of a macro discussion. Absolutely. But again, for our listeners who may have missed the last Anbro show, you guys are very happy to share some of your, your more interesting ideas out there. We, we covered a couple of stocks. And I think one of those stocks, in fact, from the last time we had, we had spoken was Dexcom. I just want to raise it, you know, again, for listeners who may have missed the last show. I think Dexcom, from the last time we covered it to now, is up around 15%. So, you know, you, know, you don't always get that in the span of a couple of weeks. But I think there's some consistency here. And again, full disclosure, you know, I, I've invested a portion of my portfolio with the Anbro team many years ago. You know, we've ridden through the cycle, you know, both ups, both downs. And what I like is kind of the consistency that comes through in terms of the thinking. You know, growth is a portion of my portfolio. It's never going to be all of the portfolio, but it's very important for us to have these kinds of discussions for investors to understand that for a growth portion of your portfolio, for someone who likes the kind of thinking that you're putting into this growth space, again, I'll urge them to go to your website, check out this note, check out some of the other content that you've done, and then also check out the, the podcasts that we've done with you, with the team in aggregate. So, you know, Craig, thanks again so much for being on the show. Uh, certainly look forward to hopefully a better second half of this year. You know, I, I, I agree with your comment in that the odds skew in your favor. So, you know, Hunger Games, may the odds always be in your favor. Uh, I, I'm certainly wishing uh, wishing that on you and on the markets as, as a whole. Before we wrap up, Craig, maybe just point our listeners to your website. Where can they find Anbro? Uh, where can they find some of your thinking? And where can they reach out to speak to you and the team if they want more information and more detail? Sure. Well, thanks, Mo. It's always a pleasure to be here, guys. I'm really you know, grateful for the time and love the discussions. If anyone wants to have a peep, you know, you can go through to our website. The the one that's dedicated to the unicorn portfolio is www.investinunicorns.com. That will give you some, you know, data on the, the unit trust as well as the listed AMC on the JSC, some previous notes, the fact sheets, all that kind of thing. And I mean, if you do want to get in touch, please feel free to do so. You know, all our contact details are there, emails, phone numbers, all that kind of thing. And um, bear in mind, we are in the UK, so sometimes, you know, there's a bit of a lag when we, you know, when we do respond, but we do try and make sure we respond to everyone and, you know, always open for questions or discussion. So happy to do that. And yes, please, you know, go and have a look and, and hopefully you find it interesting. And until this market turns, Craig, enjoy the weather, enjoy the electricity. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to chatting uh, with you and Justin again in about a month's time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. Ciao. This podcast is brought to you by Anbro Capital Investments. Invest in the future, invest in growth. Visit investinunicorns.com to learn more. The Unicorn Portfolio is managed by Anbro Capital Investments, an authorized financial services provider. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor 